0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So thanks everybody for coming. So today uh, uh, in our series of Fireside Chats, I'm talking to Rebecca Berman, who is uh, uh, our new residency program director here at UCSF. We'll talk a little about your both personal and professional life, and your experience in uh, both in Boston and coming out here to San Francisco. So why don't you start and tell us a little about your background, where you're from, and a little bit about your upbringing.
1: Great. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire. My dad was the, started the first HMO there. And so he was the doctor in Nashville, New Hampshire. So most of the kids that I went to school with were on free lunch. And I was like the doctor's daughter in town. Um, my parents had done Peace Corps and we were raised very much with this kind of like social justice bent. Um, <clears throat> we then moved to Massachusetts when I was nine and I spent my whole growing up saying I was not from there. I was from New Hampshire, but then I spent about 30 years there, so I guess now I'm really from Boston. Right. Particularly now that I'm out here. Um, and uh, I went to, I stayed in Boston, I went to Harvard College. I majored in African American studies while I was there, again, kind of taking that social justice bent. I was really interested in education, so I studied what were the uh, power dynamics that went into programs that tried to create a power elite amongst the um, African-American community in particular. Um, So actually, a lot of the work that I did in medical school has ended up translating. I'm sorry, a lot of the work I did in college has translated into the work that I do now.
0: So when you fantasized in college about your eventual career, what did it look like?
1: Oh, God, I had no idea. I did do pre-med classes because I had liked science, but I was really conflicted about going to medical school. Um, You know, you hear all this stuff about how hard residency is and how hard doctors work, and that was very discouraging for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I wasn't coming from a traditional science background, I would go to these pre-med events, and people would say, like, why are you here? (laughs) Um, And so I actually wasn't sure if I was going to be a teacher or a social worker or a doctor. Um, and I, I taught for the first year after college, and I loved it. Um, and I loved the teaching, and I actually didn't love teaching the kids how to share, and sort of decided that I wanted to teach grown-ups.
0: Were you any good at teaching the kids how to share?
1: I, hopefully, because I have yeah. three of my own now. But,
0: uh, <laughs> but I discovered story. I
1: wanted to teach my own children how to share. My grown-ups, you know, teaching grown-ups is more fun because if they don't want to come, they just don't come.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Being an African-American studies major at Harvard, what was that like? Were, were there a lot of non-African-American students in the major?
1: So there weren't. There were three of us. Um, out, of, so, out of how many? Uh, there were probably about 20 per year in the department. And mm. um, and so we were definitely a minority. Like I always knew the Crimson would often call me about sort of race relation type things on campus. And I always knew because they one of the other two white African-American studies majors would have told them to call me. You know, right. we, we always were sort of the go-to's, you know, I thought it was really interesting in terms of um, there's an experience that a lot of minority members talk about kind of crossing the color line of like being in a place where you are in the minority, and that was kind of my experience in college, which is sort of funny at a place like Harvard that that's where I had that experience, but um, I think that was actually hugely beneficial in terms of thinking about how to mentor across differences and kind of helping walk in other people's shoes.
0: Your decision to go to medical school, sounds like you were a little bit ambivalent. Uh, you had a father in medicine. I don't know what your I mother did. did, but seeing your father, was that uh, did that drive you toward or away?
1: I mean, my dad always loved his job, um, and he, was, he had practiced for the first 25 years of his career, although he stopped practicing when I was in the fourth grade, so uh, most of what I remember is more him being an um, administrator, um, and he always loved his job, um, so it was inspiring in that regard. It was... I was mostly nervous. My brother-in-law was also in medicine, and he was an intern when I was in college, and he always seemed really tired. <laughs> <laughs> he it was, was before the hundred-hour work week, or <laughs> I mean, before the eighty-hour work week. It was yeah, during the hundred-hour work week. Did we learned it we did, We're not back year. up to one hundred. Right, exactly. Okay. And it was, um, you know, he always seemed exhausted, and that was like a little bit discouraging. And uh, you know, ironically, the eighty-hour work week happened sometime when I was in medical school. So by the time I went to residency, it wasn't so bad. But also. I mean, the thing that I wish someone had told me in college that nobody did was, you know, any career has a period when you work hard, but at the end, when you're a doctor, you're a doctor. And whether you're a part-time doctor, a full-time doctor, you're a patients, you're a doctor. It's actually a really awesome mom job to me um, because there's so many ways to kind of titrate it up or titrate it down or do lots of different interesting things. I mean, my career of being, like, a teacher... And a cheerleader, and an administrator, and a doctor. I had no idea that career existed. Like all I knew was kind of bench scientist or just pure clinician. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of wish I had had better mentorship when I was in college. It would have led to many fewer years of angst. I remember when I was kind of debating whether or not to go to medical school. Um, I was doing some public health research, which I really liked, and was debating should I go get a PhD in like sociology or something. And <clears throat> My mom kept really bugging me that she thought med school was the right thing for me. And I said, you know, why are you so invested in my going to medical school? And she said, I'm not. Your father is. I'm just trying to be supportive. <laughs> um, and so, you know, my parents and I actually ultimately decided I'd gone into medical school and I still wasn't sure. And they said, look, go. And if you drop out within the six, first six months, we'll never talk about it again.
0: <laughs> it's not like we get full refunds. Yeah, just the- <laughs> exactly. But
1: it was, you know, sort of like you'll like we won't rub it in your face forever and so I went and on the first day it was clear that this was like the perfect match for me.
0: And you said the mentorship that you didn't get in college it sounds like it was sort of two dimensions one is you can fashion a career that achieves some level of work-life balance we'll get back to that later and it was also that the career can be sort of multifaceted there are a lot of different things one can do with that degree.
1: Totally I mean I just wasn't exposed to any of those things I mean it's actually on my sort of life to-do list that I have not gotten around to is actually doing more work mentoring undergraduate women about careers in medicine because I think there are a lot of um, misconceptions about what it means to be a doctor. I have a friend who actually debated whether to go to medical school or law school. She went to law school. She's a merger, she was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer when we both had two-year-olds. And she used to joke that what she wanted was my job. And her husband, who was a trauma surgeon, was like, yes, but you didn't go to medical school, so you can't have that job. That's right. But that idea of having something where you can, like, be able to do both things um, is very doable in medicine, and I think we would do a very poor job of showing people that early on.
0: Okay. So you went to med school, you went to Harvard, Mm -hmm. and you loved it from day one. (laughs) What did you love about it?
1: I loved everything about it. I loved the science. I loved the sort of people of medicine, all of these people who wanted to sort of do good and do right by the world and make the world a better place, but in a very concrete way. Um, And I loved my classmates. I think I probably had a little more fun in medical school. In college, I was kind of a grind. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked hard in medical school, too, but I think that PASS equals MD was helpful to kind of reduce the pre-med side of me.
0: Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, before we sort of go too deeply into your career, you've got a f- very interesting family, and a lot of people with uh, with interesting jobs and make contributions in a lot of different ways. Can you take us through some of the more more interesting folks in your in your clan?
1: Sure. Um, I have a really diverse um, family. We're sort of the Benetton of families. Um, I <laughs> uh, my parents are both Jewish, um, and none of us married. Um, folks from our background, but we all married people who are really similar to us in values, so everyone is highly educated and pretty high powered in what they do. Um, So my father is now Dean of Tufts Med School, Um, although growing up he started one of the first not-for-profit HMOs, Um, and so he used to joke that he went from being a communist to a capitalist with the same job um, over time, and I learned a lot from him about leadership skills and actually when I started this job someone asked me if I was going to have a leadership coach I called him and asked him to be my leadership coach. So I used to talk to him on my walk into work every day for like the first month that I was here. Now it's more on like an every 10-day basis, but whenever I have stuff, I give him a call. Um,
0: he's he's how old now?
1: He's 80, but he's still working. 80, right? Yeah. Um, I hope that's okay that I revealed that. We'll see. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> I think when it's your dad, it's not a hippo it's okay. file. <laughs>
1: I'll have to ask him after. Yeah. Um, and my mom uh, was kind of a jack of all trades. She was actually one of the first women in politics in New Hampshire. She was a state legislator. State legislator. When I was growing up, I was like breastfed on the floor of the state house, and um, there's like pictures of me waving to the crowd when I was two. She's kind of having a resurgence. She was like a feminist before her time, and so now that like, women are getting much more involved in politics. She's kind of like re-getting wow. re- to live those days. She's and did one.
0: you have presidential candidates coming through the living room all the time?
1: Well, I mean, it was in New Hampshire, yeah. so yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I
0: would think.
1: Yeah. Um, and a lot of failed presidential candidates, yeah. Sure. yeah. And then um, my husband is a um, physician scientist who works here at UCSF. And the sort of Venn diagram of our interests is over disparities, so we both are really excited to be here. Um, My brother-in-law is also in medicine. He used to be um, the head of the—I'm now blanking on his title—the office of the national National coordinator Coordinator for
0: health information technology. So he was the health IT czar for the federal government.
1: So we have him to thank for meaningful use, Um, (laughs) and uh, we have like lots of interesting conversations around the dinner table because of that. Um, And all of my siblings have gone into. Very interesting careers, very diverse and non-medicine.
0: Wow. Okay, so you finished med school. What do you think you wanted to do when you were in med school?
1: I thought I wanted to be um, a community um, pediatrician who focused on adolescent medicine. I had a sort of image of me working with the sort of majority underserved population with a couch in my office where they would kind of come in and cry and tell me their stories, and I would help them sort of sort out their adolescent ways. Life turned out a little bit different. Interestingly, I actually always thought I was going to work part-time, and that had been my intention always, and I have never worked part-time. I've always worked full-time, and I've really enjoyed my job because, again, I didn't realize you could have this kind of more flexible career Mm -hmm. um, in academic medicine.
0: And what steered you away from pediatrics?
1: Um, So two things. One was actually my pediatrics rotation. I realized I loved children and that the kids made me really sad, and and then I did my medicine rotation, and I loved evidence-based medicine, and I found that I found old people... They're cute as well, and kind of enjoyed taking care of more complex medical problems, and the combination drove me to medicine. I actually thought I was gonna go back and do a fellowship in adolescent, which also happens to be a slightly shorter way to do an adolescent fellowship. It's a two-year instead of three-year. And then realized I like to take care of a much more complex disease in addition. So instead, I always had a primary care panel where uh, the pediatricians knew to refer me some of their adolescents, so I had that flavor, but I kind of liked taking care of the spectrum of humanity.
0: When did you realize that being a uh, residency director of some sort was something that you, A, could do, and B, might want to do for a career?
1: It's interesting, and it's funny because we just had intern applicants here today. I actually remember at one of my intern interviews where I was the interviewee, I was sitting on the couch of Jane Sillman, who ultimately became my program director. And I was kind of describing how I enjoyed teaching. I had been a teacher during my time off, and um, you know, and I liked supporting people and mentoring people and she said it sounds like someday you should have my job and then weirdly like many years later I did have her job and I had her desk and I talked to other people on that couch so I think about it every time I see the new engine when she
0: said that did something resonate or it was yeah it was like like,
1: oh I do kind of want her job
0: I had actually a very similar experience I had no clue that I wanted to run a residency and I was uh, being recruited for a job at Hopkins and the job they were recruiting me for was something I was completely uninterested in and the chair of medicine at the time said, what job would you like? And I said, residency director. And I, then I looked around and I said, who said that? Because I'd never said that to myself. I didn't know it was true. And I came back here and they made me residency director. There you so go. I did that for, for three or four years. So sometimes it's strange how that evolved. Uh, in your early years, so you were resident in, in Boston as well. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, uh, made a huge uh, move. This seems like a big move from Boston to uh, to San Francisco, but this was probably a bigger move from the Brigham to Mass General. <laughs> so how'd that happen?
1: Um, so I was a chief resident at the Brigham, and I loved my chief year. Um, being a chief is sort of like being a program director, and so I kind of got a taste for what my future might hold. And I really wanted a job in medical education. And actually, I went over to the general to interview for a job mostly to get the Brigham to like write down the job that they kept saying they were gonna give me. And then MGH offered me this incredible opportunity. They had a primary care think tank and they hired me to build programs to get med students interested in primary care. And I remember I I took the two letters to some of my mentors at the Brigham and said, you know, I really want to stay. Can you look at this letter and you know tell me how to negotiate up my my options here. And one of my mentors took one look at the offer and was like, this is an opportunity to build something your own. Like, this doesn't happen very often. You should take this. And I was like, really, are you sure? (laughs) Um, But it ended up being an incredible opportunity. And when I went over there, it was very unclear kind of what the opportunity was gonna mean. Would I build out their global primary care program? Was I gonna kind of do summer internships? In the end, I did a lot of things. And the one that kind of really caught fire was helping start what we called student-faculty collaborative practices or, um, or sort of a version of student-run clinics um, that now is a big um, juggernaut at, at Harvard.
0: So sometimes when people are looking for their first job, they don't want that much responsibility to have something, have a mm-hmm. blank slate, and, that, uh, and it's kind of all on your shoulders. Uh, you obviously found that attractive. So what about that job, and what about you? made that attractive?
1: That is a super question. I think it's fun to put your stamp on something. And, you know, I think oftentimes it can be hard to be junior faculty, particularly in a big place like Harvard or UCSF, where um, there are a lot of a lot of junior faculty and it's hard to kind of have your own niche. And I think there was something appealing about trying to start something new and maybe it would work and maybe it wouldn't. Maybe I inherited an entrepreneurial gene from my family. I don't know. But uh but I really loved that creative process of kind of going around and trying to negotiate with the medical school and with, um, with MGH about how to sort of build programs to get people interested in primary care because I think there's a lot of people say they want people interested in primary care, but nobody wants to put their money on it, and it ends up working out great.
0: So I'm sure you got a rapid education in the way systems work and how money works and politics and, and all that. Uh, what were what what the main lessons you learned from that experience that you didn't know coming into it?
1: I think the importance of <clears throat> kind of turning um, everybody into allies and mentors as much as you can. So going in to talk to someone who might originally be opposed to an de- idea and really going in for advice um, and counsel, particularly as a junior person, I think people love to give advice and it helps them feel invested in your project. So there was a Um, One of the deans who had sort of traditionally not wanted a student-run clinic for about 20 years, students had been trying to start a student-run clinic, and she really worried that this was gonna be perceived as subpar care for poor people, which nobody wants. Um, And instead of kind of going in and saying, I wanna do this thing you don't want me to do, I went in and said, I'd love to learn more about why why you have been concerned about this so that we can try to build something better. And out of that conversation actually stemmed a really productive line of brainstorming, which led to this idea of a student-faculty collaborative practice, where every patient is seen by students and faculty. And what she kept saying is, well, what I say to the students is, would you send your mother there? Now, my mother had a PCP, but what I got the attendings in my clinic to do is say, well, we would send our patients to this, and we will do some urgent care of the patients who are in the practice in addition to bringing people who do not have a PCP into the practice. So really trying to get at this core principle that I believe in, which is um, one tier of care for all and and high-quality care for all. And so it wasn't just that you do lip service by going and asking for advice, but actually listening to the advice and making something better from it.
0: And were there any sort of insurmountable obstacles? Obviously not, because you surmounted them, but were there any ones that were even harder than that?
1: Well, initially, Harvard was was still very hesitant to do it. And so we eventually negotiated after kind of coming up with this, we were so proud of our sort of solution of the student faculty collaborative practice. And Harvard actually still really did not want their name attached to it. So we agreed not to have their name attached to it during the pilot. And then if it went well, we could (laughs) renegotiate. And so that's why it was called Crimson Care Collaborative, because it like vaguely references Harvard, but doesn't have the word Harvard in it. it. And then and then it worked out like gangbusters and then it was like all over the Dean's Dean's. But
0: still called Crimson. It it never never got rebranded. Never got
1: rebranded. I think they finally now call it like Harvard Student Faculty Collaborative Practice, but that took a while and sort of knowing that it's okay if you don't get everything you want up front, but just like try the pilot, see if it works, and if that works, maybe you'll get more.
0: So relatively early in your career, you have a successful experience building something new from, from nothing. Um, how did that influence your thinking about what you wanted to do later on?
1: Well, actually, being a program director had always been a kind of a dream job, and at the time, being primary care program director um, at the Brigham had been, like, the model of what I had seen. And I had sort of said to them when I left, if that job ever comes up, let me know. Assuming that I was going to MGH for like a decade at least. And then just a few years after I left, I got a call while I was still on maternity leave with my first son from the program director saying, I'm thinking of stepping down. What do you think about taking my job? And I was like, I can't even find my keys. I don't know if I'm going to want to work full time when I get back. Like, that's really nice, but like, no, you know, I can't even deal with this. And then actually, right after I got back from maternity leave, there was a funding issue with my position where they thought, I was on soft money and the
0: MGH at out. MGH, yes.
1: and they thought that the money had been, was about to be abruptly cut off. So I had this meeting with my boss where he's like, I really hate to tell you this, but your funding for 50% of your job may run out. And I said, oh, okay, well, when would that be? Thinking it would be like, you know, a year, six months. And he said, well, it would be in six weeks. So then I called, well, I called Joel back and said, remember how I said I wasn't interested in that? Like, can we, can we explore that a little more? And then it turned out, my boss at MGH should probably have never told me that because two days later they'd solved the problem and it was not an issue. Right. But in the meantime, it had made me begin to think about other things. And actually, the person decided not to step down from the Brigham at that time. And then about six months later, they contacted me again. And by that point, I was beginning to get... Crimson Care had that by then spread to, I think, five clinics... And it was getting more into the maintenance phase, like we built it up and now it was a lot of kind of grant writing to try to get funding and things like that. And so at that point, I was beginning to think about what I would wanna do and I decided to just like go over and hear a little more. I actually didn't think I would leave because I was quite happy in my job. Um, but in the end, it worked out. Initially, I actually got advice from, from my original program director not to take, take the job. Because she thought it was too hard a job for the way it was designed at the time. Um, for a working mom um, luckily I was one of the finalists and along with two others and all of us thought that it was sort of too large the way they had constructed the job and all of, like each separately had sort of said you should hire someone else to do half this job and so it worked out.
0: And that tell you something about yourself that, that you, you love the design phase and at some point the maintenance phase is a little less interesting That in terms of the timing of you feeling like you know I've done what I set out to do here and I'm ready for next uh, bigger I mean, it, challenge.
1: I do think I really enjoy that creative process. I don't want you to worry. I think there's a lot of time and innovation we do here. I'm just counting on you for here. two
0: years, and then I figure we'll wing it from after that. <laughs>
1: um, but I think that I really do enjoy the creative process. And once it's more in the maintenance phase, then I think it's kind of doing a service to others, too, to, like, create, create opportunity for them. Like, when I left MGH, my job was divided in five, which probably said that I was working a little too hard. Yeah. Um, But also, it created a ton of opportunity for other people, and same when I came here, um, you know, made a nice opportunity for somebody else to kind of bring a new lens to the program.
0: So uh, what'd you learn from your time being the, so you were primary care program director at the Brigham? Mm Mm-hmm. What'd you learn from that?
1: Ooh, I learned lots of things. I mean, I think there are so many lessons, both on um, kind of when do things work and when do they not work, and how do you sort of figure out how to roll out innovation in a way that is comfortable. One thing that I've really learned is that change in medical education is slow if you're trying to take a program that's already awesome and take it to the next level. You don't wanna like mess it up in the process. And everything you change has some effects that you can't guess at. So kind of making sure to do things in a stepwise manner so that um, you don't sort of bring too much change and then have trouble figuring out what, what was the cause and the effect.
0: And how do you ensure that that doesn't make you too, too wimpy or too incremental?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I don't know. I was talking to one of my APDs who, who said, she was like, I know you work hard and fast. And I was like, oh, that's good, because I think I take things by, like one bite at a time. So it's probably somewhere in between. You know, you want to have vision and make sure that you can do stuff that people can see quickly and then have ongoing work that's going to take a little time. I, my vision for this role and what I did in my last role was sort of had one big major change made every year. So every year you can look and say, this is what we did this year, but it actually adds up pretty fast to doing a lot.
0: So I know you wanna, you're focusing a lot on mentorship here. Tell us about uh, your mentors who've made a difference in your career.
1: Sure. Um, so Marshall Wolf was a hugely important mentor in my life. Um, In my last position, I actually held the Marshall Wolf chair. Um, So Marshall had my, you know, now I kind of have his job. He was a program director at the Brigham for a very long time, although was already program director emeritus by the time I got there. And Marshall's brand of mentorship that I think he um, was very proud of was this idea of selfless mentorship. So we want what's best for you, not what's best for us. And I think Joel Katz similarly carried that on, and Maria Yalamas, all of whom were Really helpful when I was making that decision about leaving the Brigham, which was a really hard choice as a junior person, because I was worried when you train in one place, you think that's the only place you'll be happy, and it's hard to leave. I know you were joking before about how that was such a big move, but it felt that way sure, at the time. Course. I remember I was describing it to a friend of mine who's not medical about how I was gonna move over to MGH and it felt like this big decision, and did I wanna leave all the people I knew and she was like, so you're finally leaving Harvard. And I was like, actually, it's still a Harvard <laughs> hospital. <laughs> she was like, sounds like a big decision. Right. But I did finally make it. Uh, so eventually you can make bigger leaps. But, um, you know, I think having people who really encourage you. And I remember when I made that choice to leave. Um, I remember after I would signed, Joel said, you made the right choice. And like, someday we'll recruit you back here. And so I think... Um, kind of being being able to take the leap and having people who are like the wind behind your sails is really helpful.
0: Anyone else who you saw in your career who you said that's that's what I want to be ten years from now, fifteen years from now?
1: You know, there's so many people who are inspiring in in different ways. I think um, uh, you know Bev Wu is someone who's always stood out to me as a really. Amazing mentor. She's sort of the mentor of mentors and the doctor of doctors. You know, like she was the doctor to the dean of the medical school, and she was the person that everyone went to for guidance, whether they were medical students or whether they were senior faculty. And that idea of being able to walk with people at whatever point they were at was very appealing to me. Um, in terms of being a program director of, a, of the total internal medicine residency program, I think that was something that came to me with time, actually. So when I first got my job as primary care program director, I remember joking with one of my fellow associate program directors that we actually had the best job in medicine because we got all the joys of being a program director and like, less of the headache and paperwork. And then after like, four or five years, I began to feel like, wait, well, I want to be in charge and I want to be able to make the changes that I want to make. And so you know, I think some of that takes time.
0: Was there any tension in that decision of going from a primary care program, which is in some ways what you do for a living, to running a categorical program where the residents are gonna be in some ways more diverse, doing a whole bunch of things? Uh, Was there a trade off there or that was automatically comfortable for you?
1: I mean, I had spent the first big portion of my career focused on like how to improve the primary care pipeline. And so expanding my focus more broadly to kind of career mentorship regardless of what you want to do, kind of agnostic career mentorship, was a little bit of a leap. But it, because mentorship had been such a guiding force of what I was interested in, it wasn't, wasn't a conflict at all.
0: Uh, and you mentioned you have a husband who's a physician scientist. Living with a physician scientist, what did you come to learn about that line of work, and how does that help you mentor people that want to do that?
1: That is actually probably the best education I've gotten in terms of mentoring because I saw him go through his PhD and all his friends go through their PhDs and seeing what makes a good lab mentor and what makes for somebody who you know, holds your paper on their desk for three months or doesn't help people fly once they're ready to go has made a huge difference. Um, I know we're doing a lot of exciting work here at UCSF in terms of thinking about rather than having the PI be in charge of thinking about when the postdoc is ready to go, which kind of represents a fundamental conflict of interest. Since I mean, all PIs want to do the right thing by their postdoc, but it's also convenient to have them in their lab because they get more um, publications from them. And instead, the idea of you having a committee who helps you think through your postdoc in the same way that you had one for your thesis, I think is tremendously helpful to people in terms of knowing when is the right time when are you ready, you have your K, you have your big papers, it's time to go
0: You're mentoring a whole lot of people what makes a good mentee?
1: I think a good mentee comes with um, some actual questions and some follow through so like if you suggest they talk to someone, they actually go and talk to that person Um, I think it's, you end up with a lot of different mentors in life. And so, you know, it's okay with some people to mostly talk about work-life balance and with other people talk about what you want to do in your science or whatever. Um, But kind of knowing what you want this mentor to do and being clear about what your questions are, I think is really helpful.
0: As you've tried to uh, make the mentorship program even better here, um, I think some people have a philosophy of mentorship that it's Uh, it's match.com you sort of (laughs) figure out some way of bringing the right people together some people are focused more on just creating an overall environment and hope that there's enough people bouncing off each other that Mm -hmm. things click how do you think structurally about improving mentorship in a very large complex program
1: I mean I think that the key is to have lots of entry portals for people to connect with mentors I guess the match.com analogy is an interesting one. I always think of it as finding someone who lights your Christmas tree, like someone who really lights your fire and reminds you why you went into medicine. And I try to encourage my mentees that that's actually more important than the actual project. Sometimes people get very focused on what the project is, and I think it's more uh, wise to think about the big picture of am I inspired by this person, are they gonna help me kind of grow, Um, and will I gain some skill set from working on this project? Um, in terms of the residency program, we're hoping to kind of have everyone connected to someone in the residency leadership who can provide big picture mentorship and get, give those faculty members career development in terms of thinking about how do you think about a career in the big picture? And then how, maintain our RAD advisors who do one-on-one mentorship with every resident, kind of thinking about their own goals as they proceed through each rotation and what are their goals in terms of learning as clinicians and then hopefully expanding our alumni mentorship and getting more people involved in kind of giving back to the residency and having a chance to kind of show off what their careers are.
0: Uh, Can you be a good mentor and also someone who evaluates the person you're mentoring or those those have to be separated?
1: I don't think those need to be separated. I mean I think some of the most helpful feedback we get from people are from people who are evaluating us and from our mentors, right? So having someone give you constructive feedback can be helpful. Um, and I think it's fine to have somebody who really knows you and knows your strengths and knows your weaknesses and can really help you grow. I don't think you need to like hide your faults from your mentors.
0: Uh, so you came into this program. Uh, let's talk for a minute, not so much specific about UCSF, but you're now leading in you know, one of the world's great residencies in an era where medicine's changing a mm-hmm. ton, uh, from inpatient to outpatient, from outpatient to home, and sensors. Uh, genomics is going to be a much bigger part of the world. AI is either going to help us or take away our jobs. Uh, how do you think about the uh, changes that need to happen in a training program when you're looking at that kind of trajectory of change on the horizon?
1: Well, this is more like when we were talking about sort of the change of pace in medical education being a little slower. This is what I would put on my sort of three to five year uh, horizon is really thinking through kind of what does a 21st century learner need to know? We basically structure residency the way it was structured in Osler's time because like Osler said so. And instead, it should really be what do we need to learn what do we need to teach people, and what are they going to be able to get from a computer? And they just need to know that meds can cause diffuse lymphadenopathy, but maybe not bother to memorize every medication that does that because you're just going to look it up anyway. And so I think really thinking about how do we teach people to use data, how do we teach them to use it quickly but but with depth, um, and then also just restructuring. You know, you referenced the inpatient outpatient split of medicine. Residency training on the whole has been a very inpatient-driven thing for years, but now most specialties are in the outpatient, whether it's primary care or most other things. A lot of that sort of tincture of time and the inability to follow the patient very close at hand is important. It's also important to get great hospital training and great ICU training, regardless of what you're going into. And I think UCSF is really well-situated um, well to really be at the forefront of that, where we already have our residents in that splitting their time between the inpatient and outpatient setting, especially in the R2 and R3 years, and then really thinking about, okay, now that we have that structure, how do we take it to the next level of really teaching the outpatient cardiologist what they need to know and the outpatient rheumatologist what they need to know, along with the primary care skills that we want everybody to have a flavor of.
0: When you think about uh, negotiation, I know notice that you've, you've uh, taught some courses in negotiation, Uh, I can say firsthand you're a good negotiator. Thanks. (laughs) Uh, What are the things that residents need to learn about negotiation that they often don't know before they go out on the trail looking for a job?
1: Yeah, well, I think the number one thing they need to know is that they can negotiate. I remember feeling like, why would anyone want to hire me? Um, And being quite surprised. Like, I had assumed that I would end up working where I trained because, like, why would anyone else want to hire me? And actually, I remember learning as an attending from... Eva Agard, who is a graduate from UCSF, when she was paired uh, with me as a mentor at the Society of General Internal Medicine, she was the first person to teach me that you could be recruited across the country to be a medical educator. So kind of always learning that like people will want you and it's okay to ask, I think, are the most important things. But then also, I think a lot of people get hung up on positional negotiation, kind of here's my position and I'm going to die on the stake, as opposed to thinking about, how, what do I bring to the table and what are your needs and how do we make that happen together? I don't know if you remember this, but when you were recruiting me here, we had this really weird meta conversation over dinner, during my recruitment dinner with the chief residents, where one of them said they were asking me about women and negotiation, and then they were like, let's pretend you two were having a negotiation. <laughs> how would that go down? And I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> um, But we kind of talked about how it's important to know what the other person's limitations are and assume that you're both coming with um, the best of intentions, because after this negotiation, you're gonna work together. So how do you both get enough that you feel like um, your needs are being met, but also that the relationship isn't broken? And I thought our negotiation went very well. I hope you did, too.
0: I do, very much. Discussions about negotiation skills often do uh, devolve into a discussion of, of gender differences and the way it ha- Is that your impression? And when you mentor residents, let's say, on negotiation, are you thinking somewhat differently when you're mentoring a, a woman versus a man?
1: I mean, what's interesting is in medicine, I actually think that there are gender differences. And, you know, the traditional teaching in the business literature is that women often are perceived better if they negotiate on behalf of Others. So if you say, for example, I need resources in order to help make innovation happen in this residency.
0: I think you might have said that.
1: I think I did (laughs) say that. Um, But I actually think in medicine, because doctors are so uncomfortable negotiating, it's actually easier for all doctors to kind of negotiate that way. So there is a gender element to it, but there's also this fundamental discomfort in medicine with negotiating which is funny because we negotiate with patients all the time right sure.
0: but if you think about going to law school or going to business school that's negotiation is part of what you learn as the, totally. As the curriculum yeah.
1: totally but hopefully we're going to make it part of our curriculum so
0: great uh spend a little we'll open it up in about a couple of minutes but spend a little bit talking about work-life balance you're very open about your family life and and how do you how do you think about that
1: I mean, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of debate now about what to call it. it. Should you call it work-life balance? Should you call it work-life integration? Should you call it something that nobody's invented yet? I don't know. What do you call it? I don't know, life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, I mean, to me, I feel like everyone has, everyone should have something in their life that is outside of the hospital. I think that makes you a better doctor. And for me, that is my family. I have three small children. I have a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old. So I run like a kindergarten at home. And I think... You know, I love my kids, and I love being a mom. It is the best job I have. And also, it's okay to admit that, like, at the end of a weekend, I'm kind of psyched to come back to work and have a latte and have nobody yell at me and, like, you know, have people listen to me when I tell them to do things. All of those things are great, too, and that's okay. Um, And I'm still, you know, the teachers still just know me as a mom who's dropping off, and um, I do always make a point, actually, of being like a guest visitor in each of my kids classrooms you know I was a former teacher so whether that's teaching about rockets or going and talking about being a doctor or doing something where the teacher sees me knows that I kind of appreciate what they do it gives them like 15-20 minute break Um, but is a nice way to my kids are terribly proud you know it's a nice way to kind of be involved but also be somewhat time limited. Um, I think the other thing is figuring out how to make your job work for you you know when I was Thinking about taking this job, I did get some advice from really beloved mentors that made me really sad, where they said, you know, are you sure you want such a big job, which actually made me feel bad about wanting such a big job, um, and then makes you be like, well, is that
0: What, what should they have said, and what were they trying to say? I
1: think what they were actually trying to say is how will you make this work with your, you know, I know that being a mom is really important to you and that you want to be an involved parent. How could you make this work and do this big job? I think would have been a better way to phrase it and I think was what they meant because it totally came from a nice place but it did feel bad in the receiving of that advice and so I think um, for me figuring out how to do the job in a way that works for me um, so you know my predecessor went to morning report every morning and I would love to go to morning report every morning but I also like to drop off my kids sometimes and so I said you know for me I'm gonna go twice a week and I'll go once here and once to one of the off sites and um, and that's actually worked great, you know and uh, and i'm I'm present in other ways in the residents' lives and kind of not being afraid to reimagine the role in a slightly different way. I don't know we can ask the residents, but I think they feel it still feel like they see me and um, sort of trying to make it your own or um, I now have the residents over to my house once a month for these dinners, and it's cute. My kids come down. My daughter loves to sit on my lap during the dinner and kind of, like, hang out with everyone and then disappear upstairs because they're allowed to watch iPad, which they're never allowed. So that's, like, terribly exciting, idea. super exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, having that be a way that they're—it's kind of integrating my work and life instead of my going out to a restaurant where I'm not with my kids. And um, I also like, like showing my kids my other life.
0: What are your kind of email strategies and your— Just how do you get it all done and how do you put any limits on Mm -hmm. the various parts of it?
1: Um, So, I've always been someone who's pretty efficient and I like to do things in quick moments. So, you know, you have like two minutes to go do something and kind of get work done in those little blips. Is the way I've made it work. So I tend to be pretty responsive on email, although I'm not sure I'm as responsive as you, because you have like a 30-second turnaround time. Um, it's
0: a bot. It's actually not me. It's <laughs> kind of a robot who answers them.
1: Um, but sort of fitting it into like you know two minutes when I like you know duck into the kitchen to do something and can at the same time shoot off an email, as opposed to needing to carve out like three hours of dedicated work time. For me, that's worked better.
0: And some people feel like I need to have that because I need to be present. You know the kids and I, that there I mean. definitely
1: is like when I'm in front of the kids I'm not emailing about work because yeah. otherwise they would feel like they don't have a mother right. so I definitely do think it's important to like put the phone aside and I will have it in a different part of the house than where I am so that it's not tempting because it is a little bit like you know crack in your pocket yep. um, so I do think it's important to have time when you disengage um, but I also think it's okay to have like five minutes when you grab it as opposed to being really religious about the separation
0: so there was a big move to pick up and go cross-country and pick up the family, and your husband's changing jobs, your your job. Um, what ultimately made you do that, and how's it been?
1: It's been great. Good. Um, we had always flirted with moving to San Francisco. We have a lot of friends here. My husband's brother lives here, so that made it a lot easier. Um, moving to a place where you already have good friends, I would highly recommend, because um, moving is pretty painful. Actually, the thing I had least anticipated being awful about the move, but one of the things that was probably the hardest was leaving my patients, um, you know, because I'd had many, many years with these patients. I remember I had one patient who's now like 30, and I had still had in her social history where she'd graduated high school, because that had been relevant when sure. I met her, you know, and she and I were sort of joking about all the life that had happened since then, and um, so that, that aspect was very hard, and leaving my family was challenging. My parents were super supportive, actually, um, and this was a great opportunity for me and a great opportunity for Frank- Franklin. And I think we were just ready for the next chapter. Some people have a midlife crisis. Other people pick up and move to the West Coast. Right. I think this was a better way to do it. <laughs>
0: right. well, I agree. Uh, we have 10 minutes left. Let's throw it open and see if anybody has any, any questions out there.
1: Uh, you talked a little bit
0: about the topics that will be important in the future of medical education. How about the methods of educating residents? How do you think those will change as opposed to thinking things like lecture-based teaching versus other forms of education?
1: Thanks for bringing that up. You know, I think that figuring out ways to engage people in learning is far more important. Problem-based learning has, like, taken the medical education world in UME by storm, right? It started as the new pathway at Harvard, and now there's, like, a new, new, new pathway because everyone has to innovate all the time. But everyone is pretty much doing problem-based learning now. And I think the same is true in residency. We're all used to these kind of PowerPoints where people give lectures and actually more of that flipped classroom model where people are really puzzling through it together. At the same time, you know, I think there's a mix that we need. People like lots of change and lots of different ways of learning. So if you did everything as problem-based learning in residency, I think folks may feel like I want to learn from experts and so you don't want to only do self teaching but I think doing some of that, doing more simulation and then also spaced education and I think UCSF has a real um, opportunity point here with our three hospitals and multiple clinic sites were spread all over the place and so how could we do stuff where we all engage in learning together at different times um, but kind of working through that material together. So I think We'll probably look back at how we have modeled residency times forever as really quaint um, in 20 years, Um, but I don't know exactly how that will look yet.
0: Do you think we know how to teach in the outpatient setting? Uh, It's always struck me that inpatient teaching is significantly easier. You have a whole team, and they're there. I mean, The time is harder to find than it used to be, but the dynamic and kind of the, the geography of it seems to work pretty well. And in the outpatient world, I think it's harder.
1: I think um, there are a couple things that are really hard about teaching in the outpatient setting. One is outpatient setting, outpatient medicine just takes a lot longer to learn. And so kind of making people feel like they're actually learning, because in the inpatient setting, you're drinking from a fire hose. You know you're learning. In the outpatient setting, it can be a little bit more like um, slow paced. And so you're not sure, what did I take away from today? And I think doing more team-based learning where the medical resident is teaching a medical student makes you feel like you're like, oh, I did learn something because I taught it. Um, So my hope is that the outpatient, as we move to sort of more team-based care in the outpatient setting, that we'll move to more team-based education, um, both with residents, medical students, but also nurse practitioner students, pharmacy students, the MAs, kind of working as a team. Because the more you teach, the more you learn. And I think we haven't quite embraced that in the outpatient world yet. You've talked a lot about, like, the trajectory of your career um, and just thinking with all of the residents in the room, if there is any piece of advice that you would give people at our stage of training that either was given to you or that um, you find helpful in thinking about where you are now. Sure. Um, I think it would be to take opportunity where it strikes. It's, like, very tempting to picture your career and make a plan and, like, pursue that plan, but my plan as a chief resident would have been to work in graduate medical education. And the first job I got was in undergraduate medical education with medical students. And I was like an educator with no students. It was a really weird job. Um, But it ended up being a great opportunity. And so you sort of take what you have and make it a great opportunity rather than really fixating on one thing that you think you want. And then it all worked out. So now I do lots of graduate medical education. But I loved my time in undergraduate medical education. I think it taught me a lot. Um, It kind of is like a life approach of positional negotiation of like, think what your interests are and try to pursue those interests, but don't be like too obsessed with exactly how it's going to work. And
0: people often parse themselves as, I'm a UME person or I'm a GME person. You don't think you think people can span that? And
1: I do. I think it's ME, medical education. And whether you're, you know, there's fun things about teaching medical students, right? They're, like, really bright and shiny. They're super enthusiastic. And there's fun things about teaching residents. Residency can be hard. So at times, residents might be a little less enthusiastic than others. But they're really excited about beginning the rest of their lives and that opportunity to kind of meet people right there and help launch their career is really exciting. And residents keep you sharp, right? Because they the medical students will allow you to give the same awesome lecture about chest pain for 25 years and love it every time. Or
0: or be wrong and they'll say, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, exactly. Let me look it up. Say, no, and wrong. the
1: residents will push you, like, what about that medicine you've never heard of? And um, for me, I really like both. But I'm not a believer that you need to commit. Can you talk about having 180 or so mentees or or employees or whatever you want to, you know, think about that as an organizational structure and how do you find time to know everybody and meet with everybody? So that is a great question and something I'm sort of learning on the job and it's probably the biggest change from my old position to my new position, um, along with being a little bit more 50,000 foot view and less like in the weeds. Um, So for me, I've tried to attack it in a bunch of different ways. by figuring out small group mentorship ways of meeting people in batches, and then also trying to take time to invite people to my office just to talk about their careers. And something that's interesting is when you're new, people are a little scared of you. And so kind of trying to figure out how to invite people to my office to talk about their careers in a very non-scary way and saying like, I'm reaching out to everyone. I hope you'll make time to come talk to me and then kind of stalking them if they won't come. So many of you will be getting emails like that from me if you haven't already. Um, But trying to figure out different ways of interacting with people I think is important. And then I think just trying to be present at stuff where you have 15 minutes of downtime and get to chat. Um, I'd be curious to hear from the residents how I'm doing in that regard. But I think uh, I've gotten nice feedback from people on just either coming to my house for a dinner or coming to my office for a chat. And then it's so much easier. Um, once you kind of already know each other, to take it to the next level or have a conversation in the hallway, like Lev, I know you and I went to like a coffee with a bunch of other people very early on, and now you're comfortable dropping by my office, and that just makes it much easier. Once you already met, it like breaks the seal. Do
0: you feel like a big change is not just the scale, but you have associate program directors and chief residents. You have there's an infrastructure, and part of the challenge then is when do you use them as the mechanism of communication and uh, versus times where you actually have to be the person doing it.
1: Right, and I think there's big picture times, like whenever there's a catas- national catastrophe, which unfortunately there's been more than I would like since I started, of kind of my messaging to the residents, and I send these emails. Although I love hear that Catherine Lucy or you often beat me to it, and that's great too. Um, but then times when it's you want to empower the people who work with you and to also feel like they have their areas of expertise and that they're getting to thrive. And so kind of helping mentor the faculty and allowing them space to kind of be the messenger when they want to be the messenger, or I can be the messenger if they don't want to be.
0: It's a bit, it's, I think sometimes trickier than people expect, kind of how do I get that balance right, because you want to be very much involved, and yet A, you can't, and B, you want to make sure that they have that kind of role and responsibility and visibility. So it uh, sounds like it's coming along well.
1: I hope so. Any,
0: uh, any final questions? All right. Rebecca, thank you so much. This has been terrific, and it's wonderful having you here. Really sure, appreciate thanks. It. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.